This is Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. Bell Shakespeare would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded and produced on the lands of the Gadigal and Wangal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and we pay our respects to their elders, past and present. When that I was and a little tiny boy With a hey-ho, the wind and the rain A foolish thing was but a toy For the rain it raineth every day But when I came to man's estate with a hey-ho, the wind and the rain Gainst knave and thief men shut their gate For the rain it raineth every day But when I came alas to wive With a hey-ho, the wind and the rain By swaggering could I never thrive For the rain it raineth every day but when I came unto my beds With a hey-ho, the wind and the rain With tosspots still had drunken heads For the rain it raineth every day A great while ago the world began With a hey-ho, hey, the wind and the rain But that's all one hour Welcome to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm your host, James Evans, and that was Feste's closing song from Twelfth Night, sung beautifully by our guest this week. She is a graduate of the WA Academy of Performing Arts and has a music degree from the University of New England. For Bell Shakespeare, she most recently appeared as Dogbury and Balthazar in our 2019 national tour of Much Ado About Nothing. She's a regular star of the Sydney Theatre Company's Wharf Review and she created the award-winning TV series At Home with Julia, featuring her famous portrayal of Prime Minister Julia Gillard. It's my pleasure to welcome Mandy Bishop. Mandy, welcome to Speak the Speech. Yay! Thank you for having me. <laughs> Mandy, uh, I love this version of Feste's final song. What a beautiful melody and I want to talk to you about that a bit later. But first to the words, it's it's almost Feste's version of the seven ages of man's speech, isn't it? Tracking through the different stages of life. Take us through this this speech. Exactly, James. It's um to put it into perspective, twelfth night being the twelfth night after Christmas, theoretically, and the end of festivities. Feste, the name the Feste, as he's also said, the name itself comes from Middle English, Festa and Festivus, Latin for festival. Um, I believe, or the, the way I approach this song is that this is the end of the play, but it's also the end of the festivities that the play examines, and that is um, the celebration of misrule, the celebration of um, uh, parties and servants dressing up as masters, men as women, um, the suspensions of orders and a lot of masquerades and no doubt a lot of drinking. And we will return, Festy says, 
to the the world of reality. Um, he places he it's usually well it was originally as you know please jump in at any point in time because i know you are the captain of shakespeare's fools and they actually really <laughs> scared me <laughs> they fools have always scared me because i haven't really worked out whether they are my friend or my foe as an audience why is member that? why is that there's something very mysterious dark and yet incredibly comic about them. And I feel like they're the smartest person around. Uh, yeah, and I, absolutely. I, I think their intelligence is daunting to me as an audience member. But, um, but there are different kinds of fools, aren't they? And, and you've, you've uh, played a range of them as well in your career. Uh, and this one in particular seems to be a more kind of melancholy uh, fool pointing out the folly of uh, his masters and, and, uh, and those in higher positions. That's right. He doesn't meddle with plot as much as other fools do in Shakespearean plays. In fact, he, he's, making, um, he's making a living by using his wordplay and amusing his aristocrats... Um, in two of the houses that we know of, Orsino and Olivia in Twelfth Night, or what you will. Um, and he's not hes not quite like Puck, for instance, who could be seen as a fool where he really is part of the action. Uh, he's more... Um, he's more there for amusement. Um, he battles to save his employment with Olivia. He's slightly kinder. So in this song, back to your question, he's talking about when he was young, um, to to play around was part of youth. It was to it was an in, it was innocent play. There are many different uh, variations of the interpretation of a foolish thing was but a toy. Some of them are more um, dual implicit uh, in terms of what the toy might be. It might be a part of a man's a boy's body. But I I actually. If this was played by a woman, if a fool was played by a woman, as it, as they have started to um, be portrayed, um, it still completely works in its entirety of uh, as um, youth is much more flippant than when one grows up. Um, with the refrain, uh, with hey-ho and the wind and the rain, and for the rain it raineth every day, I feel that the author is saying... This happened when I was young, but also reality was happening when I was young. And it's a reality that's out of our control. It's Mother Nature. Um, and the fact that he cho chooses rain and raineth, you know, that those two long vowels that, that, that come down on the end of each stanza. Um, but they're not... They're a leveller, but they're just a matter-of-fact leveller, which is what I, how I approached it melodically. Look, I think that um, there's something sad about growing up in, in this in this song yes. there's something and that's why i love the the melody that you've put it to there's a, there's a there's a real sadness in losing the innocence of youth of the innocence of childhood tell me about how you came up with this tune um the tune itself came from uh the hey ho i suddenly thought you know, the hardest things to sell as musicians, and by the way, I'm totally inspired by Andre Greenwell working with her last year. Thank you, Andre, and I hope this inspiration is a compliment to you. <laughs> um, I actually, she writes a really beautiful melody and she inspired me. Um, the hey-ho and nonny-nonny, those kinds of words that we don't use in songs anymore, they're really hard to sell 
It's, it's interesting, <laughs> you know, in performance. Would you agree? Like when you come across them, you go, oh, God, am I making a gag here or am I yeah. going to – is it going to be a run? Is it going to be a chromatic um, ascension? Is it going to be a repeat? But I just got this feeling um, that it's with a hey-ho. So it, it, it had a – each – that was a very basic syllable, but it could have a step in each syllable. So that's how hmm. I decided, oh, this is a climbing melody. Mm-hmm. But because it is kind of, um, as you say, youth and and a slight melancholy as he gets older and potentially his fooling leads him into drunken situations as 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 the play goes on and then the play's over before you know it, like life is gone in an instant. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a climbing m- melodic motif, but it's in F sharp minor, which is a very unusual key. And I don't know why that came to me. That actually just came to me. And I think melodies do that to composers. Not that I call myself a composer, but I'm a singer. And I think that when you're feeling something or when you're responding to text, minor and major come into play hugely. Mm. Um, mm. So I really loved exploring that. It's, it's, almost, it's almost of another world too. It's almost slightly Hungarian in melodic nature too, which as an Australian audience we might be thinking this is kind of from a foreign land, and Illyria is. Yeah, Illyria is a mysterious, magical land where anything can happen, really, isn't it? And yeah. uh, uh, but, but with Feste, his, um, his melancholy and his jokes and his gags are all there, but there, there's, a, there's an undercurrent of cruelty with this character as well, I think. And, and the way that he treats Malvolio and then when he faces Malvolio at the end of the play and says, well, you know, you told me off for falling and so the whirligig of time brings in its revenges, you know, I mean, um, this is my revenge on you to destroy your life. I mean, th- th- what about that streak in Feste? Yes, after imitating him too. You know, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrown upon them. And it's he's 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 really socking it in, isn't he? I think um, I think he's there to also prove. Well, that speaks to me to one of the themes of the play, and that is the love of power versus the power of love, and ultimately the power of love takes over and wins. The lovers unite. Um, the houses uh, are, are at peace within themselves again. But to start with, Malvolio is probably the most obvious example of his love for power. I mean, one of the reasons that he thinks he can fall in love with Olivia and she can be in love with him and that he looks forward to that um, new status quo is that he could have something over Sir Toby Belch. Uh, it's mm. not about his <laughs> his heart being satisfied by a beautiful woman. It's, it's very interesting that his motivation and even Olivia says to him very early on that you you must be getting sick of yourself love um and so the full festi is allowed to point that out um there are many ways you could play the end of malvolio and how and how he is taken upon if you played him with any power he could perhaps see the whole thing as a joke himself and him running off saying I'll get the better of you at the end of the play could mean that he's actually learnt a wit from the fool, which is another thing that I discovered in my research about this. I love that the, that Festy teaches Olivia how to fool, you mm, know, when, she's, mm. when he talks about mending and I'll prove you the fool and or, mm. or, I'll prove a fool. Um, the, the use of the word prove is both a, an, an, an acting verb but also um, 
given in evidence as a, as 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 a summation of an experiment. You know, mm. it's very, it's mm. it's fascinating. Yeah, and. Malvolio's ending. Um, I mean, yeah, you could see it as as Malvolio learning a lesson. <laughs> I I always see it as I'll be revenged on the whole pack of you. I kind of imagine Twelfth Night Two Malvolio's revenge, where he kind of turns up <laughs> Darth <laughs> Vader with, with, some, <laughs> with an army and just kind of lays waste to the entire society. Yeah, um, yeah, you shouldn't have messed with Malvolio. Um, look, what is the what is the role of music in Shakespeare? I know that you are a musician as well as an actor, uh, a singer, and music is so important in Shakespeare's plays. What's your take on that? It elevates the emotion. For me, primarily, I think, it takes us into another world where we can comprehend ideas in a way that is not academic. So while it elevates emotion, it sinks the, it sinks the message of the play into the heart for the audience. Um, it's a break from text, and so it's literally music be the food of love, play on, um, as Orsino says at the start. It... And it is, and it is the food of love. There are quite a few songs in this play, as opposed to other comedies. Actually, I think there are seven. Are there or no? mm. yeah? So I really enjoy listening to it as an audience, and it furthers the plot without having to explain anything. Right, but there's not just musicality in music itself. There's there's such a musicality in Shakespeare's text in in the words themselves isn't there, in, oh. in the descriptions, in the images. Oh, yeah. Um, just the way he uses uh, consonants and, and vowels and metre and the, the, the poetry of the scene. For instance, Olivia um, is prosaic to, to start with, but whenever Viola comes to visit... She slips into verse and, well, she skips into verse and she, Shakespeare loves exploring her heightened sense of, uh, she's alive. Actually, Olivia becomes alive around Viola, which is very interesting. Olivia, as a character, makes makes a thing of saying no to mm. everything. Mm. And so it's hilarious when Viola comes in. Olivia says, uh, doesn't take no for an answer. So... We, the whole thing is Olivia becomes the fool in in this love scene. Um, I have a little tiny bit of text of her when she's not taking no for an answer. Yeah, Would you on. like me to read go it? On. So Viola said, "Would it be better, madam, than I am? I wish it might. For now, I am your fool." So Olivia has been talking and talking and pleading her to listen and love her, and she goes, and Olivia has an aside. Oh. What a deal of scorn looks beautiful in the contempt and anger of his lip. A murderous guilt shows not itself more soon than love that would seem hid. Love's night is noon. Cesario, by the roses of the spring, by maidhood, honour, truth and everything... I love thee so that maugre all thy pride, nor wit nor reason can my passion hide. Oh, do not extort thy reasons from this clause, for that I woo thou, therefore hast no cause, but rather reason thus worth reason fetter. Love sought is good, but given unsought is better. <laughs> 
I love that. I love that. You know, it's really fascinating. Peter Evans um, often says that in, in Shakespeare's characters, love teaches them a new vocabulary as they fall in love they acquire the words they need in order to express that love. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that she's... That poetry comes at speed too because she's looking... (laughs) She's looking at her lover, her potential lover, who's looking... Her eyes are glazing over, surely, (laughs) and she has to quickly (laughs) come up with reasons. I mean, to say that... Look, because I love you, all the work is done. You don't have to. You don't have to woo me. I'm here. Take me. <laughs> like, surely this is what people work really hard for. I'm just going to give you myself on a plate, and then and then <laughs> Viola says, "Yeah, but I'll give no my heart to no woman. You know, there is no woman ever that could have my heart." And she mm. said, and Olivia doesn't give up. Like the the scene finishes with. Yet come again, for thou perhaps mayest move that heart, which now abhors, to like his love. (laughs) She's just, she's never, she's sure that she can flip this. She's transformed, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So for you, when did you first fall in love with Shakespeare? What's your Shakespeare origin story? Was it a moment that you remember or did it just kind of creep up on you? Oh yeah, I um, I remember learning about it at school and in high school when I was about fifteen, I think, because I grew up in the country. We didn't really get to see many live plays, so I started looking at theatre when I started going to school in the city. And I remember I was really quite terrible at English, um, but it was a Midsummer Night's Dream. And our English teacher was a, a Shakespeare aficionado and, and adored the text. And we were talking about something and I just suddenly understood what the playwright was saying. Actually, we should um, talk about Festi a little bit more in terms of I do believe that the fools are also the playwright's voice. Um, mm. the, the playwright gets to say, gets, gets away with summarising the character's journeys a lot with the full and also it's a window inside and outside the play so in terms of understanding the playwright as a young teenager it was the funny characters that I started to understand oh and it's love and passion that helped me understand as a teenager Hmm. oh this is what they meant and it really switched on my brain and I came and I came from being a really dull student um, not really understanding why we had to crap on about comprehension of books and um, stories and things. I mean, of course I understand that as a human being, but basically it was just a lot more homework than I thought I needed to do. Sure. And But when we got to Shakespeare, <laughs> I got really excited about all the different interpretations and the depth of interpretation you could find in this special language. And then that was it on uh, then I wanted to be an actor and work with text hmm. then um, I remember seeing Shakespeare in the park do you remember that Botanic Gardens of course yeah oh of course. wasn't it fabulous mm. and it was always very physical that that Shakespeare I loved I loved sort of learnt, I think oh wow you can stick all of this in Shakespeare it's so fantastic but by then I'd started to study acting and music and um and was lucky enough to eventually do Actors at Work for Bell Shakespeare. Yes. And we got to do five plays. I think they were Macbeth, Hamlet, Twelfth Night, 
um, Merchant of Venice and another one. And we um, took them all around Australia for f- seven months and it was so fantastic. Performing for teenagers, it's so frightening because they, when, they're like me. I just remember being that student who didn't understand until I understood. And so that was my job, not, not to be didactic, but to hopefully unlock the language through our physicality and our and our great scripts written by Ned Manning to perform for the kids so that they could understand it so earlier on in life. So did you get a lot life. of resistance? Do you get a lot of resistance from kids in high schools <laughs> pushing back saying, well, I don't want to understand it? Yeah, well, yeah, they just, you know, look out the door. <laughs> They'd look out the door, they'd start talking to their friends or, you know, whatever. So but how do you we... bring them back in? I mean, it's exactly. such a great training ground for a young actor, isn't it? That Actors at Work, uh, the Players Program, as we call it now. How do you draw an audience back when you've lost them? The one thing you can't do is you can't force it. Right. You just can't, you can't get louder and bigger because that's their game. And they're very good at it. What we, have, <laughs> what you have to do is kind of outwit them. So you stay in the language and open yourself more to the language, so that they can see that you're speaking some of their emotions and their psychology, their philosophy, mm. something that they indeed might be going through this very minute. You're listening to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm James Evans, and my guest today is Mandy Bishop. Now, Mandy, most recently you were on the Bell Shakespeare big national tour, Much Ado About Nothing. You played two characters in that production. You played Balthazar, who had uh, the, the wonderful songs and um, uh, Sigh No More, Ladies, Sigh No More, which uh, Andre Greenwell composed that be- those beautiful melodies for you. And you played, perhaps more importantly, Dogbury, the great clown. Now, I want to talk to you about Dogbury because this is a very different fool to Feste, to the, to the kind of allowed fool of Twelfth Night. This is more a natural fool, one of Shakespeare's earlier fools. How did you approach playing this role? First of all, I approached it because you very excitedly, excitingly asked me to play it. And I, then yes. <laughs> when I looked at the list of actors who'd played it, I got completely frightened because they're all very well known, very well healed, very experienced male clowns. And I thought, how exciting that a female gets to play this clown, but am I the girl for the job? Interestingly, at the time, New York, um, in New York, the public theatre who does their Shakespeare in the Park, they had a woman play Dogbury as well. So mm-hmm. it, the, the moon was right. So I thought, okay, there's no excuse. She's doing I've got to do it. Um, <laughs> um, Dogbury is... is primarily he is a natural fool as you say and and quite often played in all the research I did about him quite often played in the way that he's a bumbling fool mm, you mm. you know he gets his he has his malapropisms and he and he doesn't know anything about the law I, I I thought well I could do the female version of that which I felt I wasn't bringing anything new to what I had witnessed myself and I love to challenge myself and not repeat anything. So I thought what if he is actually a fool within a fool? So Dogbury doesn't realise he's a fool 
And everybody around him, including his employers, including his um, 2IC, which is Verges, they are all propping this ego up. And so he's allowed to exist in society, not as long as he doesn't do any damage, but he doesn't know how to do any right either so all of the people around him end up <laughs> end up um, officiating the law for him and I thought that could be very interesting he could have a soaring ego with no knowledge of the law whatsoever and no knowledge of the lack of knowledge <laughs> that makes well sense. your dogbury had an extraordinary swagger to him uh, which was so much fun and you you so you you approach this character physically. I mean, Dogbury often is all about the words and the malapropisms and, and, and messing up the, the language, but really the physicality was the starting point for you, wasn't it? Yeah, so so playing a man, whenever you have to play a man, once I'd decided and you and I had chatted about the fact that he was going to have a, a, a star-spangled ego, I thought, oh, my goodness, he's got to have a hot body. So, so... and. <laughs> You know, and and I don't... I mean, you know, we're actors. We're just what we are. So the way we approach this is that men's centre of weight, um, I've just learnt this over, you know, anatomy and the way men play sport, their centre of weight is... They've got really... Their centre of weight is up here in their shoulders, but they have very... They have strong thighs. And I know that's a huge generalisation, but... I thought someone with a great ego wouldn't mind showing off his thighs. He might not actually have big shoulders either, so he might wear shoulder pads to make up for all his losses. So just as long as he cuts a fine figure hmm. in 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 the outside world, then he can continue on his journey sort of like a a unicorn <laughs> so he's, he's, or like a pegasus. He's really he's full of bullshit. Um, so, 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 where I placed the power in Dogbury was in my thighs, and we got um, strapping tight pants, which meant it just helped me identify muscle groups that meant I would walk and prance around and perhaps lunge a bit as Dogbury. Um, and this helped me with the rhythm of the language. You know, if you're going to lunge, it's going to be on a vowel. If you're going to jump, it's going to be on a consonant. Mm. And then if you're mm. going to pick a really strong stance, it's going to be at the end of the sentence that make absolutely no sense. Mm -hmm. But um, <laughs> I believe it and you look like you all do too. <laughs> Yeah, I love the way that you just embraced those malapropisms and just blundered through them as if they meant exactly what they were supposed to mean. The the the, the ultimate confidence of Dogbury, I think, was what was what sold the character for me. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it, it was it was fun to explore because as actors, you know, we're quite that that was interesting in the rehearsal room, huh? Because when we explore rehearsals, we're all frightened um, or we're all just having a go. So to, to go into a zone of mega confidence straight away just kind of gave you, gave us all, gave you and I and, and, and I think everyone in our scenes the bravado to just like sail on, try this. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. 
Yeah. But obviously you, throughout your career, you have experience in creating big characters and bold characters. I mean, you know, think about your work on At Home with Julia and, and the way that you've kind of refined the Julia Gillard character that you play over the years. How, how, have, you, how have you done that? How, how does someone get the audacity to play the prime minister in that kind of a satirical role on TV and take the you know, the compliments and the criticisms that that comes with? It's such a lovely question because I think uh, um, it's a huge responsibility, isn't it? A huge character is a huge responsibility hmm. and and I enjoy it. I enjoy taking responsibility for my characters and when you're playing the Prime Minister of Australia, you must have a secret love for your muse. You must. Um, hmm. Whether you're playing the villain or whether you're playing... Um, uh, a hero you you must the the secret is that that you are very actually connected and respectful of your character so with julia um just briefly i just kept myself as apolitical and looked at her as a woman in this weird experience of being the first female prime minister so i just always came from the point of this is a woman in this situation and it's a first time for everyone and I liked that she was warm and funny, um, uh, which she is. And I, I, I remember hearing from people who knew her that she was warm and funny, but you can see that about her. She's got, she's got a strong sense of wit. She's a lawyer. She's, mm. um, she's very educated. Uh, so these, those big characters often come with big minds but also a, a big... A big a big warmth for the person that you're basing, you know, who is your muse. And did you meet her? Yeah, eventually I did. Yeah? How, um, how was that? It was frightening because I'd heard that she hated the series. Right. And uh, she didn't... I knew she only watched one episode. But it wasn't that she hated the series. It's just that she hated that somebody might have been making money um, by portraying her and potentially portraying her in a disrespectful way. But... Um, for those of you who've seen the series, obviously she's funny in the series, but she's certainly not been portrayed disrespectfully. She's, you can tell we're very, um, uh, we're very in love with who she is and, and Tim. Well, well, I should say there's a great fondness for um, the Labor Party in that series. <laughs> and so it was very interesting that the, the right-wing media were trying to make her dislike it it was very interesting you know but that's the case with politics all the time everyone's sort of going at it to get their point across um so i eventually got to meet her and at first she was very standoffish and i got to thank her for all her work in education and mm, mm. her work in writing a protagonist in a writing room and then she understood right and, and then right. we became friends oh okay <laughs> jules call me <laughs> that's great <laughs> Mandy, thank you so much. Look, uh, we've got just time for one more little segment we do here at the end of the podcast. It's called The Final Five. I got five rapid fire questions for you. I need some quick responses. Here we go. Number one. As an actor, Mandy, do you prefer to be the lover or the villain? Both. That's what Shakespeare does. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Mandy, what is your most underrated Shakespeare play, do you think? Look, I've never seen Cymbeline and I would like to. I, mm. I, I, I don't think we do it enough. Um, and especially in the age of women's uh, power uh, escalating in, the so in social po politics. Yeah, 
Let's have a look at it. Great. Who's your favourite actor you've never worked with you'd love to work with? I always want to work with people who are better than me, who can teach me something. So I'll go, I'm going to. St- I've got. F- I'm, I'm just going to start the list. Leah Purcell, Mark Rylance, Helen Thompson, Catherine Van Davies, Kate Blanchett. Anyone? <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> now, what is your dream Shakespeare role that you've never played before? Oh, Cleopatra. Hmm. One day. Uh, yeah, and Helena. You know, they are polar opposites. But, mm-hmm. um, yep, queens. Helena in, in Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fun. <laughs> yep. And if you weren't an actor, Mandy, what would you be doing? A pa- oh, what would I be doing? Horse riding. Professionally? Yeah, I probably would have become professional by now. I got to the state level wow. in, when I was about 15 um, and I remember stopping when I was 21, 22 when music took over. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, so you I did stopped. the whole thing, jumping, dressage, you did the works. Yeah, look, and, and I sort of, you know, I like to pretend I'm the horse whisperer, but I'm not. Um, but <laughs> but I, I, I can, yeah, yeah, I really love spending time training horses. Uh, I, it's actually the training of the horses that I really adore. Yeah. Mm. Beautiful. Mandy. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today on Speak the Speech. Thank you for having me. Bell Shakespeare is Australia's national Shakespeare company. We perform in theatres and schools in every state and territory. If you'd like to support our work or to learn more about what we do, please visit bellshakespeare.com.au. Speak the Speech is produced by Bell Shakespeare and edited by Camillo Zanoni. Be sure to follow at Bell Shakespeare on social media And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the Speak the Speech podcast through your listening platform.